Today we have the man that put ProBot in uh, common parlance, but uh, he's also somewhat known for his writing on cricket in his own uh, inimitable way, Jared Kimber. Uh, welcome back to the show, Jared. Thank you for having me. So since the last time we spoke, uh, which was sometime in July, uh, you know, a lot of things have happened. You know, you have your third book, Australian Autopsy, uh, which is the second book on ashes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been released, and uh, you know, you know what I found uh, different from reading when Freddie became Jesus to uh, Australian Autopsy. Um, you know, Freddie became Jesus was like reading you. Uh, you know, reading cricket with balls, sort of. Mm-hmm. But uh, Australian Autopsy was, you know, more like a story, a novel that went. Uh, you know, chapter to chapter, uh, developing the characters and all that. At, uh, and also there was, you know, plenty of sprinkling of uh, personal things, you know, about you hanging out with your friends. And so how was your experience in writing those two books? And how was Autopsy different? Well, I mean, when Freddie Became Jesus was an idea I had that really I didn't really push very hard during the series um, in 09. I got to the end of the series and I thought, I think I can write a pretty good book here. Um, and I wrote about 15,000 words quite quickly and then gave them to a publisher. And the publisher was obviously, you know, high on LSD at the time and he decided to <laughs> go with that. Um, and it was written literally in a drunken haze. I would write, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day, go through, you know, bottles and bottles of whiskey. My local bottle shop, uh, or off-license as they call them here, mm-hmm. had, had bullet bourbon, and I literally just drank and wrote, drank and wrote. Um, absolutely, you know, my wife who just married me at the time, I think, was thinking maybe she'd made a mistake. Um, and it was just writing as quick as I can, which is in the Cricket with Ball style. And that's when I'm probably writing at my absolute fastest. Um and then with this book, uh, this is probably, I mean, I always sort of considered myself a fiction writer. Uh, the fact I'm writing about cricket is more accidental than planned. So mm-hmm. uh, I just thought that it would be cool to sort of write about it in a, obviously use true, the true uh, events, but write about it more the way that you would write about, um, you know, you would set up an, a novel rather than the way you would set up a cricket book. Because to be honest, I don't really read cricket books and I don't find them that interesting. So I thought maybe a different style would be would be the way to do it. So I wrote it maybe the way if I was ever to write a novel, I'm pretty sure it would be much more like Australian autopsy and probably much less like when Freddie became Jesus. I also wrote it largely sober, which is not always the case. Yeah, that, yeah you mentioned that in the book as well. But, you know, you still had uh, the occasional swinging dicks and, uh, you know, fucking Tony Craig in the eyeballs. 
Yeah, but I mean, it's not like it's not like those. I mean, people. It's not like those things I put in because um, I'm drunk or because I'm trying to shock people. I mean, that's generally how I think. <laughs> might scare people, but that is, you know, my default position is fucking Tony Greg in the eyeball. Um, uh, that's just what what comes out of my mind. So, I mean, those things are still going to be in it. I, I, this was just. I mean, if you read when Freddie became Jesus, it's it's a lot more. Um, it's a lot more just thrown at the wall and there are there are certain themes that, you know, come up and then disappear altogether where with this I was a bit more conscious to if I came up with something that I thought was a good theme for the book, it comes back all the way through the book. It doesn't just come up for one chapter whereas, you know, for instance, that the Alistair Cook dreams mm-hmm. uh, in, in Australian autopsy, if that was in When Freddie Became Jesus, it probably would have been one small chapter mm-hmm. uh, whereas in this it was – I thought no, this is a this is a proper thing. I mean, that it's weird to dream about Alistair Cook. Let's be honest. Anyone who's dreaming about <laughs> Alistair Cook is weird. So, to me, I was sort of thinking, wait a minute. If I'm if I'm dreaming about him, then that should become a part of the book. And the same with the you know my relationship with Sam and um, you know other things like that. I just thought that they should they should come out all the way in the book. Whereas that's not really how you write blogs as much. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose it, it comes out, but you know, as far as, you know, I don't need to be drunk to swear. I don't need to be drunk to be perverted. That's, that's who I am naturally. So those sort of things are always going to come out. My book is never going to be, uh, a hundred percent saccharine, um, you know, type of thing. Cause I'm, that's just not who I am. And it's, it's also, it's much harder for me to write that way. I find it far harder to write for wisdom or, um, crick info than I do to write for crew with balls or one of my books, just because I know I can't lead off with a whole thing about fucking Tony Greg in the eye. The uh, one thing that really stood out was sort of the, uh, interpersonal relationships and with your friends and mates and the people that you stayed with and, Sam, you know, which we did not sort of see in Freddie Became Jesus, you know. I, I have this mental image of you uh, washing your underwear in the uh, bathroom sink, as you've <laughs> described in the book. It was actually, I think it was actually kitchen sink I did it in, but we won't tell uh, Mimi who I was saying. <laughs> you talk a lot about uh, Sam, Samson Collins, uh, your, mm-hmm. you know, uh, partner in crime on two chucks so how did two chucks come about um it sort of came back to it was actually i i should give credit to bill simmons um i'm a big fan of bill simmons i don't get as much time to listen to his podcast anymore but i must have been following him on twitter or something he put a link up saying he went to a um uh you know one of those i want to say trade show but you know where you buy old baseball cards and Mm -hmm. yeah one of those sort of sports collectors days Mm -hmm. um and he went there with a camera crew and they just filmed him going around and buying shit um and i thought you know i'm a filmmaker i mean that's that's the only thing i'm legitimately trained to do um and i've always wanted to to do something in cricket i hadn't really thought about it so i thought i bought a camera before i went to the ashes and had no idea what i was going to do other than the Bill Simmons thing was entertaining. It was obviously a completely different thing, the ashes to a, to a sports collector thing. But I thought there would be cool stories to be able to film and, and um, put together. And, you know, then I'd, it, it'd be using my other skill. And uh, Sam and I were obviously both struggling, by, you know, financially. If you're not backed by a major newspaper or a, or Crick Info or something, uh, you're basically trying to get as much freelance work as you can to get together. You're paying for your own flights generally. Or mm-hmm. some of your own flights, you have to like 
stay with family and friends and, you know, people you don't know like I did. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the same as what other cricket writers and other cricket media people do. So me and Sam sort of both knowing we were going out, it was our first major tour for both of us. We caught up just to try and work out if we'd be able to help each other while we are out there. And we knew each other before, but mm. um, uh, we, we just wanted to, you know, get together. And when we got together, I told Sam about the camera and he was like, oh, you know, we should do something about that. And he kept going on about it. And then when we caught up in Brisbane, um, before the first test, yet again, he just kept going on about it. And to be honest, at that stage, I had, still had no idea what I was going to film. I'd filmed a little bit of stuff. I'd filmed an interview with Ollie Bloom, the um, uh, Abumi, the uh, the, right, uh, the guy who rode across um, to the Ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, it was fun, but no one cared that I made that video. Um, and then on the day of the first test, Sam just came over and said, "You know, I really think we should try and put a show together." And to be honest, it was literally that I had the camera and I couldn't think of a better idea. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say either of us were genius. Sam didn't want to miss out um, as it was. He didn't want, you know, he, he saw this as an opportunity and we just started. And the first episode, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's hilariously bad. Yeah. I think it's <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it it's like bad lighting. We're, we're doing it in front of the press conference um, um, backgrounds and it's like bad lighting and bad sound and Sam's like a meter closer to the camera than I am. Um, <laughs> it, it was nasty. But from there, you know, we obviously, by the, even by the end of Brisbane, we'd start to work out what we're doing. And by Adelaide, uh, we'd laid together a fairly decent sort of format. Um, in terms of the actual on-field cricket action, you know, um, there is a part uh, where you're, in uh, MCG, taking a walk around uh, the, the last day of the test match uh, when you know Australia are pretty much going to lose. Is that mm. And you had this thought in your head about being completely down low because you know, Australia getting, you know, getting their asses handed to them. Mm. Um, you know, I had a similar feeling in Trenbridge when Lak- VVS Lakshman got bowled uh, by James Anderson. You know, I felt something give away inside me because I was like, I, you know, I knew, you know, with Zahir Khan missing for the first test, it's going to be tough uh, for India to compete. But then when the reality of going down 2-0 in the test series hits you, it's a you know, tough situation to be in. Um, so... Did you turn to alcoholism, or what was it, what is what is it that uh, got you through the post ashes syndromes? You know, um, I think right at that time, it's a, it's a weird moment that that moment when it happens. Um, I mean, I even I felt it with Laxman because I, obviously I wanted it to be a great. I wanted England and India just to have a great series for, for nothing else. And I thought you know it was maybe the biggest um, series I'd ever been in that wasn't involving Australia. So for me. I wanted that to be a big series. So uh, I felt the Laxman one, the, the Ashes one was slightly different um, in the, there was that moment of, I, I predicted Australia would lose um, basically by day four in, in, in the Gabba. Um, I'd held out some hope for them before that. And they obviously started the Ashes well, but by the end of the Gabba, I just realized they didn't have enough tricks. So it wasn't, it wasn't that I was surprised they lost um, the Ashes Um at all, it was just uh, being there. It, it's it's a weird feeling when you're in, uh, you know, you when you travel, when you travel and watch sports, um, it's a it feels a lot more personal than mm. when you watch it um, anywhere else. Now, I mean, yeah, I've watched hundreds of Test matches and I've seen Australia lose in Test matches before, but traveling 
at that point, that was, you know, the fourth test. So I traveled all the way around Australia and got there. And it's just, I don't know, there's some sort of extra feeling. I remember feeling um, similar, um, you know, feelings in, in the 2003 World Cup at times when Chiminda Vast was um, in the semifinal, was smashing Australia around that. There's very little chance that Sri Lanka were going to win that game. Eventually, Australia won it because of the rain. Mm-hmm. But it's just that whole thing of I came all this way to watch us lose, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what it was there. Um, after that, I felt great. I mean, I can't can't explain it, but it was because, you know, for four tests, just the weight of following around this team. And I knew that Australia had to lose this series. I knew 100% they had to lose this series because I knew they had to look at their culture because, I mean, I've been reporting for three or four years about their culture. Mm-hmm. It's just not what it used to be, and it, they weren't doing the right things. And I knew they had to lose and get embarrassed so that they started to do the right thing. So once they had lost, and, you know, I you know, I really felt quite right. I loved the Sydney test because I was just watching cricket in Sydney. Um uh, I decided that the book finishes in Melbourne, so that meant I had less work to do in Sydney as well. Um, but uh, it was quite relaxing and a completely dis- different atmosphere for me. Um, uh, that night, I write about it in the book. I mean, that was probably the drunkest I got on the whole trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, went out, my, you know, one of my favourite parts of Melbourne into um, uh, Fitzroy and Northcote and, uh, you know, I was at 3.30 in the morning, I was doing an interview for BBC on the TV, absolutely smashed off my face in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I couldn't get much more, you know, <laughs> a much bigger moment for me um, than that. So I, um, yeah, I think I, you know, I got over it maybe half an hour after the loss. It, it's one of those things. I, I'm, one of, I'm a different fan than some people. I, you know, I want the team to be good for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Some loss or, you know, three or four quick losses in a row doesn't matter as much to me as long as the, the team behind them work out why they're losing and fix it. And mm-hmm. it's that, you know, embarrassing loss in Melbourne to really, you know, bring it home. Um, you know, since then you have had the Argus uh, review report uh, and uh, I heard your conversation with uh, Gideon about it. Uh, so you think Australia are turning the corner or what? You know, you still have the key middle order that uh, you talk about in the book, you know, Mike Hussey, uh, you know, he's had a rejuvenation of sorts. Uh, what are your uh, thoughts now on the Australian team? You know, they, they seem to do, they have done well in Sri Lanka uh, and uh, now they have gotten off to a good start in South Africa. Yeah. I mean, I still think they have a lot of problems. Uh, it's quite clear now that, and you know, I've, <laughs> It's in when Freddie became Jesus. Um, if anyone ever wants to doubt me on it, I still I thought at the time Shane Watson opening the batting was a mistake. Um, I still feel that way, and it seems like Shane Watson finally agrees with me. The reason they won't do that is because they've got Ponting and, and Hussey, and they they want to keep them around. I mean, they are two of the legends of recent Australian cricket, and uh, you know there's been a lot of big decisions made in Australian cricket, but they haven't decided to get rid of either of those two. They got rid of the easy option which was Simon Kadic, which was probably a mistake. But they did that because it's much easier to get rid of someone like, with a low profile like him mm-hmm. uh, than someone like Hussey or Ponting. So there's still mistakes. Uh, I think getting rid of Nielsen, which I wrote about at length in the book, is um, always a very good decision. Uh, he just wasn't up to it. He wasn't a good enough coach. Um, you know, Greg Chappell, it was, I wasn't sure what stance to take on Greg Chappell in the book because <laughs> I, I fundamentally... 
am opposed to him as a human being. <laughs> um, and I didn't want him involved in the team. But I sort of felt like, okay, if you decide this is your messiah, then give him, make him chairman of selectors and give him full power. Um, apparently, my original thoughts about him getting in the way and being a bit of a nonsense and a dickhead were completely... Um, <laughs> completely backed up by what the Australian players said about him. Which, yet again, I mean, I get a lot of things wrong, but I, I do like it when I am completely spot on the money. I said he would be a defi- divisive influence and that he was a complete knobhead, and both of those things sort of came out. So I'm sort of glad they've got rid of him. Obviously, Hildich had to go um, as well. The whole selection committee was a problem. So, look, there are, there are things that are happening well. The Australian media are a little bit too excited about these four fast bowlers, considering at one stage or another last year, they were all two minutes from death. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of, I mean, I've been saying for about 18 months now that there's a lot of talent in, in guys from about the age of, you know, or 19 to 22 in Australia. There mm-hmm. is a lot of guys out there, like someone like Chris Lynn and um, Nick Maddinson and mm-hmm. James Pattinson and, you know, uh, these sorts of, and Patrick Cummins obviously is, is, looks like a phenomenal talent. But they're, you know, that's not going to, they, they need to make a decision, basically, whether they want to groom these young players with one or two senior players around or whether they want to try and win as many games as they can with Ponting and Hussey around. I think if Ponting and Hussey are going to continually average less than four, uh, yeah, around 40, you might as well have Chris Lennon averaging 35 and getting experience in Test Match Cricket. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I, I, they haven't quite decided what they want to do, and that's been the problem since 2006, 2007. They've never been sure if they want to top up with old players or mm-hmm. bring in young players, and they've never they've never done a completely re- refurbished the side. So they need to make some decisions, and that is not Cricket Australia's strong point when it comes to the actual team. Uh, for people outside Australia, especially in India, it was always the view that, you know, when it was time, the Australian selectors would tap you on the shoulder and you're out. You know, for example, Ponting was made the ODA captain when Steve Waugh was still active, sort of. Yeah. And then, you know, he was shown his way out. Uh, and you read that, read about that in uh, Steve Waugh's book as well. Uh, but what changed? Well, you need to follow Cr- Cricket Australia's press releases over about the last two years. And you can see what, what happened. Basically, they never decided that Ricky Ponting was in that bad a form or that Australia was that bad. Uh before the 09 Ashes, Mike Hussey said he couldn't believe Australia was ranked fourth in the world because they were a far better side than that. Uh, they honestly believed that. And that's part of the problem. They didn't look at this and go, geez, we're not as good as we think we are. We need to start doing other things. They honestly believed that, that they were better than their ranking and that they were about to fly back up the charts. Mm. Um, so when Ponting should have been under pressure, he wasn't. And... What happened was when he finally came under pressure, and it was quite clear he was going to be dropped as captain, and had he been fired as captain, he wouldn't have played on. So he did the smartest thing he could do. It was a tactical thing from him. He, he said, I quit the captaincy, but I'd like to play on. Uh, in the, I, I would have thought in the 90s, in the 80s, in the, you know, in any other decade, um, what would have happened is they would have said, all right, well, thanks. Now, fuck off. Um, Cricket Australia is not quite that beast anymore. Uh, you know, they're slightly different. And I think what they what they did was go, Ooh, oh, okay, we'll keep him around. And Kadich was the one. I mean, Kadich essentially got Ponting's dropping, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. But, yeah, I mean, Cricket Australia has changed. The whole culture of Australian cricket has changed over the last 10, 11 years under, under James Sutherland. And there are things that are far better. I mean... Australian cricket was the first 
cricket board really in the world to be professional. But even in the 90s when they turned professional, they were still amateur in and uh, in a lot of ways. Sutherland has made them a far more professional unit. I wouldn't say in, he's made them a far better unit. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about professional units and outfits, um, you know, that was all the talk after England basically uh, handed India 4-0 uh, dropping in the Test Series, you know, how uh, Andy Flower has turned them into this professional machine sort of thing, you know, everybody's fit and rotation and all that. Um, so here's a question from uh, Homer, your favorite mm-hmm. listener. Uh, uh he says he wants. To, he is wondering how long can England actually sustain this, especially considering um, the schedule that's coming up in the next season. You know, they they play. I mean, if you take uh, the next twelve months, they'll be playing in uh, uh, UAE. They'll be playing in Sri Lanka. They will be playing in India. Uh, they'll be playing New Zealand, um, and they'll be flying back and forth. Uh, and they'll be playing in the T Twenty World Cup uh, in Sri Lanka as well. Um, how long can they actually sustain this? Because, uh, you know, they are a tremendous uh, cricketing team in conditions that suit them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, big, the bigger problem is how they go in conditions that don't suit. I mean, that's what we don't know at the moment. Um, I thought they played quite well against India in their two-test series um, a couple of years back, considering I didn't think they were a very good team at the time. Mm-hmm. They definitely seem to handle um, subcontinental um, conditions better than the Australians. Um, I mean, South Africa and England, uh, to me, have always looked far more comfortable uh, in the subcontinent um, than Australia have, which is weird because, I mean, in general, Australian players are t- probably better against spin than South Africans and Englishmen. But that, that is how it has been. Um, a lot of the time. So, I mean, we don't know how they're even going to go in those conditions, but they, there's sort of two, twofold to this. They, they definitely need, uh, they definitely have five or six fast bowlers who are, at, you know, as good as anyone. They, I don't think there's another country in the world that Graham Onions isn't playing mm-hmm. for at the moment. Now, I know he's come back from injury, but if he was an Australian bowler, I'd say he would have been rushed straight back into the side. He'd be South Africa's third seamer. He'd probably be, when Zahir Khan's not playing, mm-hmm. India's lead seamer. Um, this is a guy who maybe isn't in their top five or six um, over here. That So they've got a lot of depth to, for, for them to play a lot of cricket. Um, you've got someone like Finn who needs the senior players around him, but a little bit like Brett Lee early on, um, you can carry Finn. They can get 30 or 40 tests into Finn. Um, with the attack that they have. Now, I mean, that's the playing side of things. The other side of things are um, is that Australia has been the most professional side in the world. Um, at times, South Africa has probably been as professional as Australia. I'm, I don't think these two sides are going to... Uh, they're going to have to learn from England, right? Um, on top of that, you've got Dhoni, who's probably still one of the smartest captains in world cricket, if not the smartest. If he can't, after all this time, work out that there are deficiencies within the Indian um, setup that he needs to fix, and that he can fix, he can't fix everything. You can't make Sewag a good fielder. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you can't you can't make Sachin go up to number three because it's for the good of the team, right? There are some things that won't happen, but he can make Team India fitter. He can work on um, their fielding. You know, he can work on, you know, Dhoni is in a position where he should have the sort of power where he can say to the BCCI, this is the schedule we want. Those are the sort of things. So if you've got Australia, South Africa, 
um, and India all getting more professional, suddenly England loses one huge advantage. What, what's England's big advantage? They're five bowlers, you know, five five frontline quick bowlers and a very decent spinner. I mean, that's all Swan is a very yeah. decent spinner. Um, you know, in a better in a better period, he'd just be handy. But because spin is maybe not quite at the top of its game at the moment, he's like one of the leading spinners in the world. But no, no, you know, he's not going to win them that many tests. Um, and he look, he struggled against India for a long a long time. So. If, if you look at it that way, England have two main advantages over everyone else in that they're, um, they've got the most professional setup in world cricket and that they have more bowlers than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And generally, the team who has the best bowlers and the deepest um, you know, selection of bowlers is um, the team who's on top. I mean, that's what happened with Australia. Uh, you know, that's why South Africa was so good for so long. Mm-hmm. And there's absolutely no reason why England can't stay you know, at that point for a few more years. But... That's why Australia is, you know, optimistic at the moment. And uh, that's why India might struggle. I mean, there is a chance that they just don't, they don't produce strike bowlers at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But, um, you know, you mentioned about how uh, England and South Africa have done reasonably well in subcontinent, but it's always been Australia, actually, that has given the closest, I mean, the most absorbing cricket in India was always been from Australia, you know. Uh, England, yeah, they they lost the two test series, one nil. Uh, it was a close match of whatnot, and then Sri Lanka, with South Africa, India drew one all at home. But it's always, I mean, they beat Australia two nil, but it was the closest. I mean, Australia could have won the test series two two nil actually. So. Well, they couldn't have because they're just not quite good enough. Um, <laughs> they're also they're also unlucky. To be fair, if Dougie Bollinger um, didn't get injured yeah, in that yeah. first test, I think Australia win easily. Australia have done well, but they've done you know they've done okay in India with brilliant sides. Whereas I I don't think South Africa or England have had nearly as good a sides as Australia, and they've done far better at times. Um, but yeah, I Australia aren't you know, in the top three best sides in the world. Uh, they might be if they beat India at home because India might struggle. I think India are going to smash the average sides, but right at the moment I just can't see how they're going to get out the better sides unless unless something changes because I think there is a new – I mean, Ishant Sharma and Praveen Kumar could be 10-year bowlers for India or in a year's time we could be going, what happened to them? <laughs> But, but India have to get more professional. I mean, I I see you know your little you and Homer and Archip and all these all these people on Twitter basically going on making jokes about um, how professional England are and taking the piss. Well, fucking, I've been up close to India. I've been up close to England. I've been up close to Australia, uh, and I've been up close to Sri Lanka. I would say Sri Lanka was more professional than India. Now that that just should not happen. You guys have the money, you have the structure. You can basically get any coach in world cricket other than probably Andy Flower that you want. You have one of the best captains um, of of the modern era. That you should be the most professional side, if not just behind it. I mean, you can talk about India having its own, you know, um, problems and things are done differently in India, but mm-hmm. things are still done in India. Things still get done right at the moment. You know, India doesn't look that professional. And they're going to win this series at home, and then all the Indian fans are going to start crowing again, whereas really what they should be saying is this series means fucking nothing because England are rubbish at one day and look even worse than one day in, in the subcontinent. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, it's just there, there are problems there that India need to fix, and I've seen that up close. I just 
you know, I don't believe it's run very well. Well, let, let me point, let me point out something. This is two teams. I've seen two teams pick left arm bowlers who weren't fit enough for Test cricket against England, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen Dougie Bollinger play in Adelaide, where he clearly wasn't. He wasn't match fit. I'm not sure he was even. Um, he'd even got over his injury 100 percent at that stage. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't have been playing. Then I see RP Singh mm-hmm. um, play now. I don't think in either of these situations England would have picked that player. Now you can talk about scheduling. Uh, you oh, can I talk wouldn't. About I wouldn't have picked up about Singh either. I, I still yeah. am baffled why he was picked. I, yeah, I have no I'm idea. Right at the moment, I don't believe England would have picked either of those players, even if they thought that those players were, you know, um, uh, you know, Test match quality and could actually help them win the Test. I well, think... I mean, but that, that's what I'm saying. It's not just India though, because if you go back to Australia and Adelaide, right? Mitchell Johnson and Ben Hilfenhaus were apparently rested for that test in mm-hmm. Adelaide, and they picked a guy who wasn't fit. I mean, this, this is what I'm saying. When I say Australia and India aren't professional enough, I'm not talking about, you know, just press conferences and all this sort of stuff. I mean that they, they're not thinking things through as clearly as England do right now. Now, that is something that India, Australia, South Africa, can def- and New Zealand can definitely do. And also, I'll throw something else out to you. If R.P. Singh was on South Beach, right, surely he was trying to pick up chicks. You would have thought he would have at least lost some weight to go around topless. Coming back um, to, uh, I mean, uh, to the selectors, uh, Indian selectors and England selectors and Andy Flower and everybody, um, I don't know what Dhoni can do. Well, I mean, picking fit players would be a start. Um, I, I think... This is what I see. I mean, yet again, this is where I think, and I keep coming back to India and Australia because I've seen a lot of both teams recently. This is where I think they got it wrong. Australia picked a coach in Tim Nielsen that was basically the sort of coach that wasn't going to rock the boat, that was friends with all the players, um, and that was going to keep things on an even keel. What they needed at that point was to look at their side and go, actually, we need a coach who is going to rock the boat, who's going to come in here with a firm plan, who's really going to coach these players, who's going to get things moving. Instead, they got the status quo coach, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you look at India. I mean, Homer and I have talked about this at length, that India are on the the cusp of basically needing to completely overhaul their side. I think they should have started it a couple of years ago because I think there's enough young talent there that they could have done something with it um, and they they wouldn't have lost anything. Instead, they haven't. They've kept all the old players, but we all know that one way or the other, there's something is going to change in Indian cricket quite shortly. Mm -hmm. So in that case, why would you pick a coach? Who, special, who, who believes that fast bowlers are the only bowlers, uh, why would you pick a coach who's old, who's been out of touch with the international game for a couple of years, and who hasn't, isn't really that good at working with young players and bringing them up, is far better at working with players who've already been in the side and making them better. And on every level, they pick the wrong coach. So you've got two countries there that have just picked the wrong person to lead them. So the first thing India need to do is go... Let's get the best coach that is available in the market. Now, there are a lot of decent coaches in world cricket. Not all of them are actually working for a side. Duncan Fletcher, just, I can't, the amount of ways that he's the wrong coach for India right now are staggering. I got nothing to say on that. He'd be a good coach for South Africa, though, conversely, funnily enough. (laughs) 
I mean, that's the sort of team he needs. I mean, your South African team is a team with a bunch of guys in their you know, mid to late 20s mm-hmm. who he, he could turn from them into a team that maybe becomes number one in the world. I'm not that convinced with him because he has been out of cricket for a couple of years. But to me, he, he, he'd be more logical for South Africa than he would be for India. It's not, you don't coach Dravid. Mm-hmm. Dilka or Laxman or say right, those guys don't need coaching. It's this next generation that need coaching, um, and they need someone who can get the best out of them. And I'm not sure that's that's Fletcher. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, uh, uh, what happens in Australia will go a long way in determining how long Fletcher stays with the team. Yeah, for uh, sure. We'll see. I mean, uh, I hope you know India don't play all the uh, older players against West Indies at a home series. You know, they need to play the young batsmen and the bowlers and see who can actually play test cricket and then take them along, you know, um, and see how well they do in the Ranji Trophy. Some of the guys coming back from injuries. Uh, and then uh, if they do well in the Ranji Trophy domestic matches, then take people on form rather than uh, reputation. So... Mm. I hope they have learned something from the England uh, series. Yeah, and and look, that's a problem because this this is my problem with um, the way that a lot of Indians handled this, right? A lot of them said, a lot of them started abusing England for gloating, as if you're not gloating when your team's smashing the world number one <laughs> side. And I, I even saw you whinge about that. I almost abused you at one stage. She says, of course they're fucking gloating. They're smashing you. I've, I've never seen a, a number one side get smashed like this in my life. So, of course, they were going to gloat. Then the others the others started making the jokes about the professionalism. Well, I'm sorry, England were, England don't have much more talent than India. In, in their top 11 players, there isn't that much, there isn't 4 nil worth of talent, you know, difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing was that we'll get, we'll, we'll get back to you, you know, when, you, when we get you back home. And it's like, well, if you want to be the number one side in the world, at the very least, I'm not saying you should beat England um, at home, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't have, get smashed like that. Like something else should happen. Um, it, it was overall like the batsmen, bowlers, uh, and no, nothing basically panned out. So, are India that dreadful, or it's just, uh, I mean, I understand there are a lot of problems, you know, you still need to take care of the players, make sure they're fit before you play them, make sure they are match fit before you play them, Um, I understand that, but once you went 2-0 down, they panicked, I mean, they brought in Sehwag, who wasn't fit at all, and played him, Um, they brought in RP Singh in the fourth test, I mean, once the floodgates opened, it was open. India was. I thought they would. I thought they were more of a fighting team. I, the reason I'd respected them as a te, as a test team is the way that they'd fought, and I didn't see that this summer at all, and um, that disappointed me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not gonna go digging into my old wounds, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I, I can still vividly remember I was standing outside Radcliffe Road in at Trent Bridge and. Uh, I wanted to cry <laughs> when I heard the road that Jimmy Anderson bowled Vivius Lakshman. I was, you know, I wanted to cry. So I'm not going to revisit that. But you know, but but I'm with you in the sense that there are a lot of things that need to be done. Uh, and uh, winning the ODI series, whether three-two or five-nil against England at home, or beating West Indies, is not going to paper over the cracks. Uh, they need to identify who they're going to be playing test cricket in two years' time, four years' time, and start playing them. 
I couldn't believe the way that India collapsed. And a bit, you know, a bit before that, like Sri Lanka collapsed, a bit before that, like Australia collapsed. Teams are completely losing their nut against England. And it's all well and good to say that, you know, Australia had injuries and selection problems and India had selection problems and, uh, sorry, injuries and um, scheduling problems and Sri Lanka had political problems. Mm -hmm. It's all well and good to say that. But out on the field is where England are crushing teams. Um, and, you know, it annoys me as much as it annoys anyone, but they're playing good cricket. Yeah, certainly. I, I'm not doubting that they are um, a very good team at all. Um, but you know, kind of, with the kind of brutal scheduling uh, that's coming up for them, uh, especially playing away from home, I guess in a year from now, it will give us a much better idea of how good they are. No, exactly. Exactly. You know, one way or the other. Sure if a year from now, they'll be number one team in the world. I mean, we know how good South Africa have been over the over recent years and in beating average teams. Mm-hmm. South Africa are playing a lot, you know, a bunch of cricket up, you know, coming up against average teams. There's every chance they'll be number one in the world. It's very possible. So, I mean, so England might not even be number one. It, to me, England is the most balanced side. The only thing that South Africa has going for them is Imran Tahir. Mm-hmm. If he can do what I've seen him do, um, and I'm not, I know he's bullied county team uh, attacks or county batsmen because he's just too good for county batsmen. But if he can even do 75% of that at international level, um, he's the sort of bowler who can bowl eight overs, none for 110, and then have five for 150. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's how Imran Tahir um, goes. But that's the one thing that South Africa have been missing. So uh, if he comes in, and they're the team that can afford to have him because they can have four quicks. Um, and Imran Tahir. So the worst-case scenario is he doesn't bowl when he's having a bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there aren't many other teams like that. So, I mean, they could be a very good team to Africa, but we all know that they've got a lot of they've got a lot of scars still. And to me, they've still never beaten the best teams in the world to get to number one. So even if they get to number one, they're, they're the most default of the, of the recent teams have been number one just because when they had their chance to beat Australia to become number one, they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And when they had chances to beat India to become number one, they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all credit to India and England when, you know, they did it far, far better. Uh, well, uh, I guess time will only tell. Um, so, all right, come in, let's come, come back to the book. Uh, I saw that uh, Amazon uh, is providing uh, Australian autopsy in a Kindle format. That's right. Uh, when did that happen? I don't know. I, <laughs> um, I got a tweet that said new Kindle books, Australian autopsy. And then, um, and then someone, and I forgot about it. And that was about two weeks ago, I suppose. And then about a week ago, I think a uh, deep backward point on Twitter might've bought it. Um, or something like that. And that reminded me that it was on, uh, it was on Kindle. It's what, look, I mean, I, I work for a small publisher, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically, you know, one and a half people working in an office who both have full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, things get missed. So I don't always get told when something happens. Generally, my book's on sale well before I know. <laughs> so things are going well on that front? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't talked to my publisher that much of recent times. I think it's selling okay. Um, the publisher, I must admit, he's doing a good job. He had the, um, he's just released the book on Tony Gregg by David Tossel, which mm-hmm. I haven't read, but I've heard really good things about. Um, and then my book then came out, and then the last book um, since then is a book called Chasing Sachin yeah. uh, by a guy. I think his name is Adam Carroll Smith. Yeah, he's going to be coming on uh, Couch Talk too. 
Oh, really? Oh, excellent. Well, he's, um, I've only read one chapter, um, which was all about him telling his mum that he was going to bowl to Sachin mm-hmm. um, and his mum thinking that Sachin was some kid he went to school with years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, it's quite a funny chapter. I'm you know, hoping that the, the book is quite good. I haven't got a copy yet. Um, but, um, yeah, the publisher's doing well and sort of getting some really good uh, cricket authors together. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Jared. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Couch Talk.